Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're discussing Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, from a Futurist Perspective, uh, which is really where our interest in the book lies. And uh, also we'll cover some of the criticisms that, uh, that the book has received. And it's, it's really such a long book that all we did last week was really summarize it. So this week, we're going to jump right into talking about it, which means that if you didn't hear last week's episode, you might need to catch up on what's actually in the book. And so you can go and find that podcast on our website, reviewthefuture.com. But today, we're just going to jump right into the analysis of it. So we buy the basic premise of Piketty's book uh, as far as the predictive power of his um, theories, but I think the the... The scenarios that he uses for projection are these very conservative UN scenarios, and I want to consider uh, what some other things might lead to if you were to use them as baselines. Piketty takes this um, this Gordon Cowan approach. Century. By Gordon, Gordon, you're talking about uh, Robert, Robert Gordon, Gordon and, right. and Tyler Cowan, who are both like stagnationists. Stagnationists, right? Robert Gordon is the one that Piketty actually mentions. So they're they're both arguing for slowing growth. Right. They're arguing that in the future, economic growth will be lower because innovation has slowed down. That's particularly what they suggest. And he doesn't really he doesn't really address that. He sort of weakly says, well, that might be the case. Some people say that. I'm not here to um, make that point. But he makes the simpler point that historical growth was low. Uh, growth up until the Industrial Revolution was you know, 0.1%. And during that time, obviously, uh, there was high capital concentration. And he just thinks it will tend closer to the mean that uh, that the 20th century was an anomaly. But he doesn't consider the other possibility, which is that uh, the Industrial Revolution took a little while to take off and then uh, created uh, economic growth that could potentially increase into the future. And there are people who uh, believe that. Right. The opposite view is that we're accelerating rather than we took a like a, a tangential you know, rather than it was an anomaly. Right, that it's the new normal. That it's the new normal, and maybe that it's, you know, it's pretty soon going to be the new normal plus. Right? right, well, I think it's not impossible to imagine a world of very high economic growth in the future. And I think you can imagine some specific uh, technologies that would enable that. For example, uh, cheap photovoltaic power could fuel massive economic growth around the world by bringing power to places that it's currently very expensive and difficult to bring power to. Or sort of the the theory that's been put forward, I guess, like say in the second machine age, which is another book that we reviewed, mm-hmm. is, you know, that we're sort of harnessing uh, mental power, whereas the industrial revolution was like sort of more about harnessing physical power, you know, steam engines and things that could, you know, basically replace human muscle that as we're moving into more like artificial intelligence and software, we're actually replacing human mental activity. And that that could be a difference in kind that could accelerate growth. Right. Well, I think there's a question whether, I mean, that is the kind of uh, acceleration we're actually seeing. And there's a question whether that's going to result in accelerated growth or not, right? Because of right. uh, ephemeralization. Uh, which is where the, the measurement which is, issue, right? Right. Which is that growth... What we're talking about about growth here is uh, very specifically economic growth. It's growth in you know the monetary uh, part of the economic system. Uh, it's not necessarily just bounty in the terms of McAfee and sure. Bernalson, uh, which is just things that make your life better, right? I mean, it's clear to us, I think, that technology is continuing to increase bounty in the sense that people's lives are getting better. But that better. wouldn't necessarily be clear like Gordon. But that wouldn't be clear to Gordon uh, because he basically says, well, if it doesn't show up in GDP, it's not growth, right. um, which I think is 
an okay definitional way to, to approach this, but I don't think it's entirely clear that new technologies will create new economic growth. I think it's a possibility and a reasonable one that because of ephemeralization, we won't see all the bounties show up in the growth statistics. But I also, I could imagine a world in which actual growth actually does go up due to technology for another hundred years. That doesn't seem impossible to me actually at all if the right set of uh, breakthroughs comes through. Well, what, well, I mean like health and longevity breakthroughs that like made a large portion of the population able to Productive. work all of a sudden, like, sure. like uh, sure. Uh, uh, health and longevity, uh, power, um, basically anything that's attacking a real limiting scarcity that we still have, uh, improvements in food growing improvements in, um, which could lead to demographic growth, like physical human person, demographic growth, uh, which would then lead to, uh, economic growth by definition. Um, all of those things could happen. Now, obviously we've talked a lot on this podcast about declining scarcities and, uh, how overall we do expect growth to slow down because of ephemeralization, basically. Well, it will slow down as it's in the ways because of the ways that it's measured, right? I- again, yeah, like uh, yeah, but I don't. I'm not. Inter- I'm not anticipating we change the measurement. I'm saying definitionally approaching it, saying GDP is growth. We c- we expect it to slow down because I think there's you know there's you know economists could come up with a better measurement of this. Sure, uh, sure, but just set- setting that aside for a moment. I I do expect it to go down, not because of innovation drying up, but because innovation affects things that are more internal and more ephemeral than it used to. However, I don't think that that's certain. I think that it's possible that while that ephemeralization happens, simultaneously genuine scarcities will be uh, attacked by new technologies and therefore uh, uh, will be able to obtain a new era of fast economic growth, uh, like the one in the 20th century, which happened when petroleum power really got, you know, utilized across the board, basically. I don't know that that's certainly going to happen. But again, it, it doesn't seem to me like an, uh, uh, a given that uh, will definitely have overall economic growth reverting back toward the mean. The other thing to take into consideration is that the globe is uneven here. And we're just talking about on average for the whole world. So if places like India and China maintain, you know, the 8 to 10% growth that they've been able to achieve in the last couple of years, which again, that's not certain, the the Western world could be uh, growing at a much slower rate while the world in general would would see a higher average growth in that case. Well, and I think, I think Piketty does address that, right? I mean, that was discussed in that chapter 12 to sure. a certain amount. Yeah. So but- he addresses the fact that their high populations will keep them from from eating the world in that case, but... Uh, well, he talks about happen. he addresses the fears of them owning the world, right. but he also does talk about their, you know, the leveling worldwide of you know across countries. Well, right, and this is actually this leads into the next thing I want to talk about, which is that Piketty predicts that demographic growth will slow in what he calls developing countries or poorer countries as they get more rich and more similar to the West, and that's from these. UN projections, but I think you can problematize that oh, prediction yeah. on a number of levels. So, having babies is such a cultural thing. Well, okay, so let's start there because it's absolutely right. Having babies is extremely cultural and it's not necessarily clear at all that these countries that are getting richer, such as the oil producing countries in the Middle East or China or India, are getting more Western in their attitudes toward having babies. I mean, that's, I think, a huge leap to make. So just for example, if you're a very religious Muslim society and you get richer, you should be expected to have more, not fewer children. And in fact, the rich men in those societies in some cases will 
even have more wives. So they'll have a lot more children because they'll be able to have two or three or four at a time. Well, um, and in fact, you know, just over the long term, the people, if, if that is the case, then that's, that's who will own the future. The people that keep having babies uh, and keep growing their demographics. I mean, th- those are the, the well, like that- we talked about, that's actually a force of, uh, of uh, convergence though, because if those sheiks, for example, have lots of kids, then their fortunes get split up among the kids and they don't concentrate quite as fast as if they had been passed on to just two heirs. It would be a force of convergence, uh, yeah, I guess in that society, but also possibly worldwide, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is very, very complex. And then, I mean, I think even further, developing countries or poor countries, southern countries, whatever you want, they're not necessarily getting richer. I mean, obviously, China is getting richer, and India is getting richer, and Brazil is, but uh, there's a lot of other countries that aren't getting richer, particularly in Africa, and they aren't necessarily developing and getting more similar to the West as they get more modern. Um, modernity is uh, independent of Westernness, and there is a lot of cultural ways to be modern that don't necessarily involve having Western values. Right, it's hard to separate like what's a function of modernity and having like more greater access to resources, and what's just a you know a cultural right. Uh, factor. And I think there's just so much conflation that goes on here, where we assume that these developing countries are somehow like back in time, you know, and it's that they're a, it's like a very Western centric, that they're view, yeah. catching up to the time that we're at, you know, but that's not how it is. They're in the same time. We are, they have different realities than we do. And their culture is evolving from now toward, a, toward the future, just like ours is. So, right. It's very Western centric for us to assume that developing countries are going to become more like the West, even if they do get richer. And I think it's also, uh, uh, just, naive not even western centric but just naive to think that all these countries are going to get richer because i think the western countries are not going to allow it i mean historically the reason that they're not richer is not because they're stupid countries it's because they keep having wars and depositions and economic sanctions put against them by powerful western nations this isn't like this isn't you know this isn't anything people don't know but it's something you don't really talk about and i think you know as much as piketty tries to sort of unpack this stuff he he doesn't really uh get around that well, another thing that's interesting to me though is uh-huh. is that you know in the developed world we have all this infrastructure that is of a previous technological era right so a country Which that's actually... just now coming online to some of these technologies that are brand new might design their infrastructure from the bottom up in a completely different way that um you know, if you wanted to be optimistic about their future, they might d- design it in a actually much smarter way than we're possibly capable of doing with our legacy infrastructure. Right, or we may find that our legacy infrastructure is just a drain in some ways. Right? Or they may just do it in a way, maybe not a better or more efficient way, but just in a totally different way that in this... Right, that just, just suits their situation. That suits better. their culture and the right. fact that the technology is utterly different than when the current developed nations develop. Right, and I mean, you already see evidence of this. There's a lot of nations that are setting up cell phone networks that don't have, you know, landline or even a reliable power network. Right, that's a good example. And that may lead to populations that are much more informed than they are, you know, able to do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that we've done, you know, are just sort of weird technological artifacts, like setting up, you know, suburbs with like roads for autumn and like putting... Right, which is like a petroleum-based, so yeah. uh, you know, um, design philosophy that might not be good for a future where photovoltaic is cheaper taking this to like a further 
a more speculative point of view, I want to take it to the, like that Robin Hanson idea, which is that even if it's true that biological humans reduce their demographics, we may still see a demographic explosion in the next hundred years of AI persons, uh, whether that's like the... Right. The Robin Hansen idea of an emulated brain uh, stuck in. Yeah, uh, let's go through that really quickly because it's. It, I mean, the, our listeners may or may not be familiar with Robin Hansen. We'll sure. talk more about this later. But his sure. his premise is that we will potentially have the technology to completely scan uh, all the salient details of a human brain uh, and then emulate that brain in a computer well enough to create a virtual being that is, for all intents and purposes, able to do all the things that a human right. mind can he do. He sort of actually defines them as having infinite elasticity in terms of substitution for human labor. So that's like very specifically what how he defines them when he talks about them. And uh, so you might have an explosion of these software beings. Because they are just software at that point, That's which um, sort of leads to a huge demographic explosion because right. you can copy them as well, easily the, as you would copy files. Right. Their, their cost to run would be extremely low because they're instantiated in, in a computer. And of course, they can be copied. So if you find one that, that works well, you can copy it many, many times. And when Piketty talks about population growth, he says, well, if we continue at our current rate and nothing changes in the rate, then the amount of human beings on Earth is going to explode to 70 billion in the next 100 years. And he says that that would be an undesirable number. I presume he doesn't say why, because of Malthusian-type carrying capacity constraints. But if you consider the possibility of AGI or emulated brain beings, uh, then you can imagine that 70 billion number quite uh, realistically, we might just basically continue our demographic growth patterns exactly as they've been going uh, and switch the substrate over. And just like, you know, capital switched from being agricultural land to being financial assets, uh, beings might switch over from being physical beings to being a combination of physical and artificial beings. And in, in that case, we could, uh, we could imagine demographic growth alone accounting for tremendous economic growth as a result. Well, and I think, you know, Beyond that, even you don't. I mean, I think that that leads to such an extreme demographic explosion that that Robin Hanson explores. But I think you know, even you know, within the realm of the the physical world, uh, you know, it's a big planet. I mean, we can find probably ways to house lots of people if lots of babies is what it turns out people want. And I think you know, from an evolutionary natural right, it's not clear at all that we're near our Malthusian constraint levels at all. Or I mean, that we shouldn't bet on the fact that we're just going to keep reproducing. I think it's it's very odd and hard to explain in a way the fact that developing nations would level off because that seems so counter to uh, sort of both like the logic of evolution into like, you know, I mean, it, it seems like that can't last. I mean, those people that are having less children uh, are decreasing their numbers and the people that are having more number more children are increasing their numbers. It yeah, seems like over the just, long term, you should bet on the... Right. The other way besides breeding to combat inequality is with immigration, which works in a similar way because it tends to you tend to have poorer people immigrate in who are younger, and so they come in below the previous lowest group. So he talks about predicting future mortality. Now, obviously, we think that mortality rates might decrease and longevity might increase in the future. Piketty has mortality climbing due to all post-boomer cohorts being larger. So obviously there was a big population jump in the baby boom. And then since then, the next group was also large, etc. So he just thinks that there's going to be a one-time tick up 
in mortality as baby boomers start dying. That Unless will just the uh, stay magic forever. ray Kurzweil bus comes along to pick up the baby boomers and take them on a fantastic journey into the future. <laughs> in which case, that uh, argument is wrong. Yes, exactly. So that when you phrase it that way, it doesn't sound that likely. And I well, he t- might take himself, but I, <laughs> I, I, I doubt say, he can. Has I don't think the bus has room for boomers, but that bus might be picking us up, and uh, and if not, it'll almost certainly be picking up uh, people who are a generation younger than us. So I think uh, in the 21st century, we're going to have to deal with the fact that despite these larger cohorts, uh, mortality may actually go down. Now, I think this doesn't affect his major predictions because, as he shows, um, the the wealth at death uh, ends up being basically proportional. So, uh, so it evens out. And I think uh, generation lengths uh, getting longer is the thing that might actually change inheritance in the future. So if people uh, who are living longer start waiting artificially long times to have children, uh, like let's say the average length of a generation instead of 20 years becomes 40 years over a period of time, that would actually uh, change the structure of of inequality because you'd be waiting longer to have those kids. You'd still obviously be giving the kids gifts and, and eventual bequeathments, but um, it does seem like the the average length of a generation, which has been basically unchanged throughout human history, has been the actual determining factor in when inheritance happens. Um, so that may that actually may change, I think, in the future. The if if people decide to. Uh, if people who are living longer well, decide to, to postpone let's, childbearing. Let's play this out, though, because we've talked about this uh, before, and, and I think the vision we posited was, you know, like, let's say it's the baby boomers that uh, that go on the fantastic journey to immortality. Sure. For, like, let's say they make it, right? Okay. Let's say Ray Kurzweil lives his dream of, of crossing over and, and taking advantage of enough longevity and advancements that... Uh, it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle and those people can live forever. Got it. Those people already have most of the wealth, right? Mm-hmm. So that means that for now until the end of time, you know, if I'm just taking this to the logical extreme, mm-hmm. those people are going to have most of the money, right? Well, no, not necessarily, only in a low growth regime. If we assume that economic growth will be low, which I think is a reasonable assumption, but it's not for sure, right? then those people will... By definition, okay, but let's, as, let's assume that have the money. And, and continue with that as yes. as as the as what our sure. base assumption. So, in a low growth regime, and assuming that uh, boomers achieve longevity escape velocity, boomers essentially eat and own the world. But then, at the same time, they have children. Their cho- their their children have uh, grandchildren. Like, and aren't they? They're going to continue gifting downward, right? But sure. the, the pyramid below them will be growing, right? Sure. So in a way, it's that it's that situation of you know the rich people having more children, right? It's like they're if they're well, if but, they're but, li- but boomers have had their children and they didn't have more children. So if it's boomers that we're talking about, no, but they're still invested in the lives of their grandchildren. Right, right, right. And so grand, great, great, great grandchildren. If the richer grandchildren can be incentivized to have more great grandchildren, say, then that would be uh, a force of cohesion or convergence, rather. It just seems like if they're living long enough, right, and we're not having generational turnover, mm-hmm. right, but the gifting is still going to happen. Sure. But the people that you're on the hook to give gifts to is going to continue growing, right? Because you might have two kids and right. you might have four grandkids 
And then you might have eight great grandkids. Right, right. right? And so that's going to be... And if you can somehow convince people to have four kids, then they'll have 16 grandkids. And, you know, I mean, it's it's a square. So it really does uh, grow fast if you can increase the numbers But even top. if you're not increasing it, just, sure. it's just going to increase with time. Sure. But as, each, unless one generation says, screw it, we're not having any more kids, right? Which... Right, which is something that we have to worry about because they seem to be saying that like in Japan right now. <laughs> right, so it is so, possible. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely possible that we'll have a world in which uh, the oldest money continuously wins against all the younger money, and then people who are lucky enough to have rich families are supported uh, by the pyramid scheme that you're describing. I'm saying that the inheritance money, which but, in this case is gifts, mm-hmm. is being subdivided. Sure. Among more people. It yeah, it will be subdivided among more and more people, which I guess would I'm asking reduce, if that would have a similar effect. It would reduce the importance inequality. of well, it would reduce the importance of wealth among the younger cohorts while while continuing to reinforce the importance of wealth worldwide because the richest people who are giving the gifts obviously would still continue to win and they'd still be able to invest a significant amount of their capital at the highest rates of return, which nobody else would be able to get, not even their, you know, great grandchildren whom they're providing. So ultimately this would be, I think, very bad, which this is what we've said before. Ultimately, I think the lack of turnover due to death would probably turn out very bad for equality. I think, you know, correct. I'm just, I was just proposing possibly the opposite. It would turn individuals into something very like the university endowments that he studies, which are these immortal, you know, uh, piles of money that are associated with an institution um, uh, and, you know, got ahead a long time ago because they, whatever, they set up the first college in the United States or something. Right, and one of those grandkids is going to be a great money manager. At least one of them. Exactly, and when they can afford to get, uh, have enough money managers that, you know, that they can, that they're out earning um, people who can afford fewer money managers because apparently that works like that. You know, it's not clear that that would necessarily work like that, but the, the, the data shows that it does. So, yeah, I think that um, you might have a situation in which, uh, you know, you return to something kind of like monarchy where there's like, uh, you know, uh, a few people at the top who are immortal and are just growing at such an extreme rate, much faster than everyone well, definitely else. Definitely, if they had a lot of kids, it would feel like very, a lot of people would have that last name, you know, like... Right, like right. if there were a lot of uh, Gateses walking around. Sure, like yeah, absolutely. I mean, this will those clans, whichever they are, the Gates clan or whatever, will rule the world if that's the world that we end up in. That's a very feudal sounding society. It is, it is, and of course, you know, the coordination that the globe would need to do to take that away from them, which uh, Piketty talks about, would involve basically instituting a world one world government and somehow keeping it from being captured by the world's rich, which sounds. Like a tremendous, uh, if not impossibility, then a tremendous, tremendous challenge. Just to wrap up the podcast, I want to quickly respond to some of the critics of Piketty's book and just respond to whether we think we should you know, take this stuff seriously or not. I mean, I read the book because there was so much criticism of it, and I didn't really follow a lot of the criticism. So one thing that people criticized is uh, they criticized his, his estimates of global wealth as being different from global wealth reports. And he addresses that in the book, basically... Uh, global wealth reports are uh, self-reported, and they just suffer really badly from underreporting. So what he did is he used a series of techniques that you could agree with or not to try to uh, account for the underreporting. The Financial Times came after him for irregularities in the data, specifically in Britain's data, 
at the very end of the series kind of dipping down and, and looking like it uh, went away from his trend. But uh, uh, new, new data that's come out since then uh, supports Piketty's arguments. And then Larry Summers uh, did what I thought was the most thoughtful critique of the um, the book, and he critiques two things. One thing he says is that uh, he doesn't take into account diminishing returns on capital, but in fact, uh, Piketty does take those into concern uh, into account in the book, and he explains exactly why he doesn't use them. And he says, of course, as you grow, the total amount of capital, the amount of usefulness you can get out of any one chunk of capital, goes down. That's obviously a truism. But the question is just how fast, and is it more than proportionately or less than proportionately? And he alleges that in the data, uh, less is the common reality. So that's a question of available technology. It's expressed as the elasticity in the production function. So basically, the amount that capital has diminishing returns as it accumulates is uh, directly related to how elastic capital substitution for labor is. And so since we've already talked about, since we expect that to go up in the future, as computers can substitute for humans on more and more things, um, we expect that the amount of diminishing return is going to be less than proportionate to the increase in capital itself. So let's just assume for a second that, uh, that Larry Summers is right, though. He, he basically says that due to uh, not taking this into account and due, due to not taking into account a depreciation of capital over time, which Piki also sort of explains his way out of in a way that you may or may not buy, that, uh, that he's wrong in, his, in, his, um, in that the predictive power of R is greater than G uh, doesn't, doesn't hold out. And that there have been times in history when uh, the wealth data that Piketty uh, uh, presents, he he supports. So he's just saying that the income. He identifies some counterexamples where the RG relationship doesn't hold. Right. He says that if you take these other things into account that Piketty's uh, decided not to take into account, that he knows of studies, and he doesn't actually link to the studies, so I wasn't able to look at them, where that suggests that during certain parts of history, uh, R has been less than G. But at the same time, inequality has gone up during those time periods. So what he's suggesting is not that Piketty is wrong about inequality. What he's saying is that Piketty's inequality doesn't have predictive power. And I think that that's actually a much darker thing to say about capitalism than Larry Summers realizes. Well, and it's extremely plausible, actually, that like you know it would be really convenient if you know R and G's relationship could explain this. But it would be yes, much darker. Uh, and and a, and a, I think an equally plausible world that again it's just this positive feedback loop that you sort of almost always have this march towards inequality, which is what is implied, right? By right, what exactly. Is He's saying. implying something that's very close to Marx's original hypothesis, which is that the system is always rigged. That even if R is less than G, that the fundamental logic of capital is just that it always accumulates faster than. Uh, uh, you know, it always creates inequality. It always accumulates so fast that labor can never catch up, uh, regardless of whether the growth rate is above the return, uh, the historical return on capital or not. And uh, so I think, you know, it's possible that Larry Summers is right about what he's saying, but I think his point was to discredit Piketty and uh, from the right. And I think he's actually... Uh, if he succeeded at all, he's only discredited him from the left, is what it looks like. Um, he's laying the groundwork for an even more leftist uh, Marxist critique. theory. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. without knowing it, I which guess, I think, which is funny. yeah, which is weird because you assume that Larry Summers would know what he's talking about. And Piketty is really a centrist here, and he is trying to support the idea that free markets are a good way to organize society, but that we need to increase the power of our democratic institutions in order to rein in some of the negative effects of which we could do a whole nother podcast on just like the you know this whole idea of 
cultural unfairness and uh, what we're actually trying, what are the values we're trying to promote here? Because it right. sounds like he's, you know, pro, you know, quote unquote competition, but against this sort of version of unfairness, right? Where like, well, what he says in the book is that uh, he believes that modern societies are based on uh, meritocratic values that only tolerate a certain amount of arbitrariness um, to assigning uh, the winners and also that protectionism and nationalism are bad and he wants to avoid them. So he actually doesn't say anything about free markets or competition at all, although it's assumed since he's an economist that he finds them valuable, um, since it'd be curious to get into that profession if you didn't. But uh, he doesn't actually state, say, competition as a core value. He basically thinks that we should avoid protectionism and nationalism while promoting uh, the general interest. It seems like the core value that he's promoting uh, then is is a bit. Fu- he's basically saying to stave off revolt, revolt, yeah, which is not a core value. That's a, that's pragmatism it's, as it's a, a core prag- value. Yeah, it's a pragmatic goal. To stave goal. off revolt, we must therefore create a. Well, see, the thing is, if you just wanted to stave off revolt, you could. The illusion of meritocracy would be good enough. But right. actually, that's not what he believes because no. he, he doesn't like the illusion of meritocracy. He thinks it has to be he, actual meritocracy. Correct. He thinks you should be able to support this illusion with with empirical data, and he's super aggressive about gathering empirical data. I think his actual value is that he likes data. <laughs> and his final conclusion was that we that should have should more give of it. him more data. Essentially, <laughs> yes, no, we, I think that's absolutely right. He is somebody you who wouldn't write this book if you just didn't love data. No, it's it's true. I think he's an empiricist and a pragmatist, and I think you know his ideology is one of centrism, where he wants to maintain existing institutions. I think because you know he's French and he knows what happens when you kill the king. He's not looking to propose a radical new solution. He's like trying to assume, well, assuming that there's a lot of inertia with the institutions we have. What's the best and worst we can expect? And I think he doesn't go, I think he's a little conservative in both respects, but I think he actually does uh, provide a framework for understanding inequality that's been missing from economics that's really powerful and valuable that I think will continue to be valuable in the future as, as we get new data. And also by explaining this elasticity of substitution, I feel like for me, he really enlightened how to reconcile this vision uh, that McAfee and Brynjolfsson have in Second Machine Age and uh, their previous book, uh, Race Against the Machine, with the viewpoint that Robert Gordon and Tyler Cowen have, uh, like in Cowen's book, uh, Great Stagnation, which is if you buy this idea that elasticity is like a fixed coefficient of technology, which has been embedded in the, ma- in the models of, of productivity uh, for a long time, uh, you can see our current world as being one of low innovation. But I think if you take a step back and look at the way the world really is, you'll see that, of course, we have a lot of innovation. And instead, what's going on is that that, elis- that elasticity is going up, uh, but it's not going up in the model and it's causing measurement errors. Yeah, the idea that one coefficient or one constant could somehow describe the, you know, sort of added The usefulness value. of technology. It, it's yeah. trying to reduce all technology to a single power kind of that it that you multiply by a human but of course if you're familiar with accelerating returns in technology we would assume that that power would increase with time and you certainly wouldn't assume that this would be like a fixed constant in the way that you know the speed of light or something or pi or something you know the idea that you could use one i mean if if it was a fixed constant you would want to have a good theory for why right 
but there's been, I think, no more than just limited data in the past was the reason why <laughs> that that got set up like that. And uh, one thing that uh, is great about this Piketty book is it shows that you can really challenge these ideas from the past with empirical data and get somewhere doing it. So hopefully we'll see more of that in the future and move more toward an economics that actually represents the world and is not just a you know, ideological shell game for intellectuals to play among each other. Okay, so that's all we have time for in this podcast. This is a massive book and it's just got a ton of different ideas in it uh, that are really thought-provoking and interesting. So we covered just like a sliver of what we could have covered here, but hopefully we got to the most interesting stuff. And I think the book's going to be really important because I think it gives a useful framework for how to think about inequality prediction going forward. And I think that's going to come up over and over again. So I'm glad we covered it. And I hope you get a chance to listen to our podcast, even if you can't read the book yourself. It is is, is big. Yeah. And as always, uh, you know, if you disagree with us, please let us know what you think. Uh, Leave a comment on the website or or send us an email. Yeah, and if you are on Stitcher or iTunes, uh, please give us a rating on there. That would be really great. Uh, Join us next week when we talk about mind uploading. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.